Hello and welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, the fantasy, and the horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English and film at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave in the winter of 2021 in a course on 100 years of the horror film. We've arrived at the 1970s with the top grossing horror film of all time when adjusted for inflation, the Exorcist. There was a web article, December 26th, 2019, celebrating uh, the anniversary of the release of The Exorcist, which was released December 26th of 1973, that asked the question, is The Exorcist still scary? This is a film that um, made more money than any other horror film in the history of horror. Once you adjust for inflation, if you don't adjust for inflation, it's the first chapter of it. If you don't, it's the exorcist by a large margin. It leaves it not too far behind in the dust, but far enough for it not to really be a question of the most um, successful in financial terms uh, film uh, of the horror genre. And Den of Geek wanted to ask, is the, is the exorcist still scary? And their answer was finally, yes. Yes, it was. Um, and there's some controversy over whether or not what we're looking at with The Exorcist is a horror film. Um, because, you know, we have this sense that, you know, if the, the author says it or the director says it, then it must be true. And William Friedkin, the director of the film, said that it's not a horror movie. Uh, there was a sense on the set on the set of the film that, you know, we shouldn't call it a horror movie. It's a theological thriller. And, and, uh, both, um, William Peter Blatty, uh, who wrote the novel that, uh, the exorcist is based on and Linda Blair, who plays Regan, the little girl who becomes possessed in the film also said it's a theological thriller. It's not, not a horror film. And we're going to explore whether or not that's necessarily the case, uh, today, um, but the version of The Exorcist that uh, that I watched, that my students watched, was not the original, not the one that made all that money, not the one that was released on December 26th of 1973, but rather the version you've never seen. It's sometimes packaged as a director's cut, which is somewhat misleading. William Friedkin, uh, in interviews talking about this version said that he made it for Blatty. Uh, there was a rift between the director and author slash, uh, screenwriter of the original, uh, the, of, you know, the, the book and then the, the film, um, over some of the cuts that Friedkin made to the theatrical release, but they, they did a, a revamp of it and re-released it. And that's the version, uh, that we looked at, um, some interesting changes, I think that are worth noting, uh, but the film hasn't been changed too much in terms of what it does. Uh, the version you've never seen slash director's cut ends on a more upbeat note. Um, but I don't think that that really answers the question definitively as to whether or not what we have here is a horror film. I don't think a horror film has to end on a down note to necessarily have qualified as horror. But as I said, this this was an incredibly successful film. Um, lineups around the block situations um, in its wake, uh, you, know, you know, lots of um, 
rumors about people fainting and um, theater goers calling up um, Catholic priests after they'd seen the movie saying, I think I need an exorcism. So it was a cultural phenomenon. It was more than just a successful film. It was a cultural phenomenon. And the amount of money that it made was unheard of for a horror film. Horror films could be successful, but not at the level that The Exorcist was. And part of that was the sort of gentrification of horror films via this particular picture. Although, again, Friedkin says it's not a horror movie. But I I don't know, you know, I I don't know if I can trust somebody who's got a, a, a movie like this telling me that this is not a horror film. It feels a little disingenuous. It's a little bit like uh, when Philip Pullman, the author of His Dark Materials, the His Dark Materials series, said that he didn't write fantasy. And I'm like, you wrote a book about a talking polar bear with a little girl who can tell the future with a clock. I, I don't know what else you'd call it. Um, but uh, a tr- an attempt on Pullman part, I think, to distance himself from an author he hates a whole lot, uh, C.S. Lewis. And in the case of Friedkin, I think an attempt um, to distance himself from the non-serious nature of horror, that, you know, this somehow was uh, an elevation uh, above those things. And I, I do think it is an elevation. I think that this is definitely a masterwork of a, of a film. It's really, really well made. Um, it's, you know, it's a studio picture with a big budget. It's not Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's not Night of the Living Dead. It's nothing that we've seen yet. Now, there had been earlier films that dealt with the subject matter that The Exorcist explores. Uh, Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby in the 1960s was not only very successful, but it was also considered a, a critical success. I mean, we always have these two different levels of success. It's a critical success, the critics like it, or a box office success. And those are sometimes, uh, you know, they they're, they're they're not they don't they don't melt they don't merge up uh the critics don't like it um but everybody does everybody goes and sees it and so it's a critical bomb but people love it um and then on the other hand you can have uh the critics going this is an absolutely fantastic movie and then people go and see it and they don't like i don't i don't understand and so you get this whole idea uh People frequently saying, like, you just can't trust film critics. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, but the but Rosemary's Baby was a critical success. The Exorcist was a critical success. And both were box office successes as well. So something in the American imagination, at least, uh, that uh, was interested in films involving children and the devil, uh, the domestic sphere and the devil. So... Uh, This is a film that is notorious for all sorts of reasons. Uh, Among them, Billy Graham, uh, he wasn't a televangelist, sorry, very popular evangelist of the the period. And and this is noteworthy because um, Billy Graham is, you know, he he takes the the format to some degree of what was tent meeting prior and makes it into something that packs stadiums. Um, And I think that this is important to to note simply to understand what was going on in the popular imagination of Americans at the time that the film was released. And to some degree, this was also the popular imagination of Canadians. I grew up in um, evangelical churches, primarily uh, North American Baptist ones. Um, But when I was a kid, I was aware of who Billy Graham was. He was sort of like he had this celebrity status guy hung around with Johnny Cash. Um, So well, he met him. I don't know if he hung around with him, but uh, Johnny, uh, sorry, uh, Billy Graham said that this movie, that The Exorcist 
It wasn't just evil, but that the very film itself contained the evil or the devil or something like that. You know, that, this, that, that, that there was something insidious in the very celluloid that the film was printed upon. Uh, another thing that was, was noteworthy at the time was how Lindsay's uh, prophecy, uh, work of prophecy, I guess you'd say, a biblical prophecy, a book about it, um, that was also made into a film in the 1970s. Uh, and I've, I've chosen the film poster for the image that I you know, would want to um, have represent the late great planet Earth, although most of the book covers are also similar to this image of uh, the Earth on fire. It literally looks like the planet is going through space and burning flames coming up behind it is very very apocalyptic i mean this is this is when worlds collide without the robot without the uh, rocket to get off the planet um and uh and but this book came out in the 19 in the very early 1970s and it was about uh, how the events of the 1970s were clearly leading to uh, a biblical apocalypse in the 1980s. And so, again, this is something that's in the popular imagination. And it's, it's, it's notable for the same reasons, to some degree, that Billy Graham was notable at the time. Because Billy Graham's packing out stadiums, the late great planet Earth is a work of... Uh, eschatological musings these are theological musings about the end the destined end of mankind of humanity and uh it was published by a secular publisher bantam books uh was uh, at least the the paperback copy that was in my house was a bantam book um as i recall it was it was a popular book i remember seeing it when i would leave we would be leaving the supermarket and it would be on like the stands there like this is something you could just pick up and read if you wanted to really cheerful bathroom reading uh the planet's screwed we're all gonna die and it had this theological significance to it and i have to align all of these things with something that um uh i experienced as a kid which was watching the movie a thief in the night which you could almost you could almost include a thief in the night in a course like this uh throw in the christian horror movie from the 1970s 1972 um the tagline here the the paratext and there will be no place to hide bum, 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 bum. Uh, I remember this film being shown in my church when I was like five, six, and it was terrifying. It's a, it's a, you know, the, everybody's been taken up to heaven who gets to go up to heaven and stuff's going on on earth. And there's people chasing other people to like imprint them with the mark of the beast. And I mean, I mean, I could be remembering all of this wrong. I just remember that it was terrifying and that it was about the end times, that it was about this destined theological end of everything and all of that coalescing at the same time i mean if christians are making movies that basically feel like horror movies you have a book out that says the world's ending just around the corner billy graham's packing out stadiums and this guy's saying that the exorcist uh you know has has the devil in the very you know print of the film hal Lindsay said it was you know an awful movie that was going to bring about the downfall of humanity or something like that something inflammatory you add all of this stuff up and you've got you you've got this sense that the that 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 North America was really ready for a movie like The Exorcist a movie that was going to render um the very thing that Friedkin calls it a theological thriller in real realistic terms that you know whatever you believe about actual demons or exorcism uh this film is going to deliver on in a way that will feel believable and i th i think that's really what this comes down to is that this film felt very real that's the trouble with film um we we respond very strongly to fiction and stories they they capture us 
and we we get we get lost in their fictional worlds, their diegesis. And because movies like The Exorcist, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, were filmed with this sense of a very popular approach to filmmaking in the 1970s, cinema verite, that makes it feel like it's real. Um, film, you know, film goers come away from this movie with this sense that they had seen something that somehow m- mirrored reality. And like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is supposedly based on, you know, the story of Ed Gein, but might, you know, it was, it was more that, that um, Toby Hooper had heard about, people like Ed Gein and other serial killers. He says, I didn't really know Ed Gein's story when I made the movie. I sort of learned the facts later on. I just knew that there was all this crazy stuff going on. And that became this melange they put together to craft the, the mad chaotic narrative of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And there is an analogous thing going on with how the exorcist progressed as uh, a story element with its plot points and the events that occur via the novel because uh, Blatty wanted to tell the true story of a supposedly actual exorcism that had occurred in the early year, uh, early half of the 20th century. And he couldn't get, he, he couldn't get the releases or the rights or something like that. And so instead of doing that, he just took what he knew about that story and then blew it completely out of proportion. And that's one of the, the things that I love. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Mark Kermode's, um, BFI film classics book on the exorcist. But if there's a reason that I'm glad that I own it, it's for the section in which, uh, Kermode breaks down how Blatty's novel, um, only has a few pieces that really fit with the true story, like the actual account. And then there's all these things that Blatty brings to the table that were not part of that original account, but, but are, are fiction, whole cloth fiction. Now, Blatty is devout Catholic and brought those religious sensibilities to the writing of the novel. But it's fascinating to find, you know, that there was so much fiction placed into this supposedly based on a true story narrative. But you get that kind of stuff swirling around a film. The press picks up on it. People find out it was based on a true story. And it kind of moves into that space of, of urban, urban legend and urban myth, especially, uh, I know growing up that, um, growing up in, in, in evangelical circles that, you know, people would say, Oh, I knew a person who was, was, possessed. I I worked at a summer camp once when uh, we had one of our counselors was super, super sick. And his co-counselor woke all the kids up in the middle of the night. I mean, you want to talk about scary camps. Um, All these kids up in the middle of the night to perform an exorcism on this poor counselor who was just suffering from fever and chills and but you know it must have been the devil um so just the kind of thing that i grew up around so it doesn't really really shock me um knowing that the exorcist was such a huge film i'm i'm i actually understand my childhood a little bit better not in the sense that my parents uh were were into any of this sort of sensationalism i mean we did have the late great planet earth kicking around the house but um my parents didn't go in for the sort of like there's a devil under every rock and you better be careful or it's going to crawl up your foot. Um, but even the, uh, the, the, the moment in this film, which won, you know, uh, an, an Oscar for its sound design where the demon speaking through, 
speaking through Regan speaks backwards English uh, made me think, oh, now I understand all those guys that used to come around to our churches and speak on the evils of rock and roll and how if you played your records backwards, you know, you could hear Led Zeppelin singing about my sweet Satan or something like that. Um, I think The Exorcist was such a huge cultural phenomenon that it actually did affect um, genuine religious belief moving into the eighties. And I, I have, this is just a little bit of wacky Pershawn theory. I don't have any, um, solid research to back this one up, but I have to wonder if a lot of the reasons, well, not a lot of the reason, but one of the, the reasons for the satanic panic of the 1980s in North America, there was, there was corollaries in, in Britain and in Sweden, um, was might not have been the result of a movie like the exorcist. And it should be said that it wasn't all, uh, people who professed Christianity who didn't like this film, like Billy Graham didn't like it. Uh, Hal Lindsey thought it was dangerous. Uh, but there were a lot of Catholics who thought it was great. And that makes sense because Blatty was a Catholic. He was writing about Catholic expressions of Christianity. Um, but I, I think that the 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 hangover that that came from The Exorcist moved out into all uh, facets of North American Christianity, at least the ones that, that I was I was close to. So um, the very title of this film, though, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, tells us as viewers, as many horror films do, to be scared early on. Like there's something insidious about the title. Right. The exorcist, even the even even the sounds of the word, you know, shoving an X in a word can can really kind of mess with us. I think there's some like almost because of the X rating. Is there a negative connotation that when someone shoves an X into a word, all apologies to those of you who have X's in your names, um, but it generates this sense of dread. So we're back to Julian Hainich and his five types of cinematic fear. And Hainich says, dread is an intense but quiet, anticipatory type of cinematic fear in which we both feel for the endangered character and fearfully expect a threatening outcome that promises to be shocking and or horrifying to us. And The Exorcist is an interesting study uh, in how long can you sustain dread? Because it's really about an hour before everything hits the fan in the way that you know, we would expect from a horror movie. Like there's the sounds in the attic. There's the moment with the Ouija board and the movie keeps giving us these nodes that tell us that something's coming. But even if we experience cinematic shock, the jump scare, when the, um, the, the, the playing piece on the Ouija board jumps, it's still not a moment where we've, we've com- completely come to, a realization of our fearful expectations of that threatening outcome. It has not arrived. Uh, We are not yet fully shocked. We are not yet fully horrified, but boy, this movie keeps creeping up on us. It keeps investing that sense of dread. And there is, um, there's a rule supposedly in filmmaking where you go 30, 60, 30, in terms of the breakdown of the plot of the film. So the first 30 minutes are going to be set up. And then they're going to make good on what this movie is really about at the 30 minute point. And then for the next 60 minutes, it's going to be development of that narrative. The conclusion will like, we'll, we'll start running to the climax at about the 90 minute mark. And at the two hour mark, we're done. Or you can break that in you know, like by ratios. If you're working with a 90 minute film or some film that doesn't run at two hours, but the exorcist, even in its original run at two hours, takes that 
that first hour to just keep building dread, to just keep developing the narrative. And occasionally a moment of cinematic shock, like, you know, when, uh, when Chris McNeil, the mother is up in the, the attic and we get this sudden, you know, uh, jump scare, cinematic shock. And then we're back to more dread and it just keeps playing on that dread. And then there's the moment where we find the desecrated statue of the Virgin in the church. And oh, that's, it's not a jump scare, but it's like, what did I just see? And it cuts away so fast, cuts away so fast before we can really even get a good sense of what we're seeing. It cuts away. And I got to say, there are lots of reasons why we can, you know, praise the exorcist as being a great film i think it's editing is is one of the foremost reasons why this film works so well these little subliminal cuts that that people have made so much about over the years where the film has this sudden almost subliminal insertion of a very very short amount of footage of eileen deets who was linda blair's body double for regan uh, in some test makeup that they did that they ultimately said they really weren't going to work with. But then later on, Friedkin was like, you know what? I'm going to use those shots. I'm just going to shove them in the film all of a sudden. And when those go boop for just a little moment, we get, I think, what Julian Hainich calls that, that moment of cinematic shock, that compressed type of fear that ruptures the situation suddenly and unexpectedly, the jump scare, right? And they aren't, they aren't the full-on jump scare of the uh, Luton bus that makes you go, whoa, but rather a jump scare that makes you go, what did I just see? What, what was that? I, I don't even, I'm not even comprehending what's going on, but it was unsettling. And you look at the way that Friedkin um, has like what, what he's, what he's cutting this against. What's, what is the parallel image to this? And, you know, it's this little girl laying on a table waiting for a medical examination. And suddenly there's this intrusion. So we get this utterly mundane moment for the most part. I mean, like, um, I'm a parent. I've had kids have to go to the doctor. Sometimes it's been really scary, but it's still, a normal thing. It's not a horror movie thing at that point. I mean, this up, if you could excise the supernatural elements of the exorcist in its first hour, this is a movie about a woman who is a single mother and her daughter. Something is medically wrong with her daughter. This movie could go on to be about cancer or a brain tumor. It wouldn't have to be about this insidious demonic presence. And then maybe Father Karras would just be this priest who's losing his faith, who has to somehow grapple with mortality. But that's not the narrative that we have here. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, we get these shots of, what is it, the demon Pazuzu, Captain Howdy, um, that, that, are, that are cut in very, very fast and produce this moment of cinematic shock. But that's because Friedkin has been cultivating dread the whole time, and that dread gets us ready for that. But the way that the film is built in terms of its parallel narratives is, I don't want to say a masterwork of editing. I mean, there's probably films that are edited maybe more artfully, but I think the editing is, is one of the reasons uh, that this movie works so well. I mean, we just have to think about the way that the film is structured. I mean, because editing is about structuring. It's about that final moment of storytelling. You know, once the screenplay has been written and all the footage has been shot, sometimes the film deviates from the original screenplay by going in directions that, uh, you know, the, the cutting room 
can dictate. We get a prologue in this film, right, where we see Father Marin, played by Max von Sydow, in an and I got I just got to say this the makeup for Max von Sydow is remarkable because Max von Sydow was still a pretty young man at this time and when I say pretty young man he actually was kind of pretty when he wasn't in you know his full aged makeup he's a good looking guy and he's young and father Marin makeup goes on Max von Sydow becomes Max von Sydow 20 years down the road uh, fascinatingly one of the only people that I can think of who has played both Jesus and Satan because he did it in uh, in the uh, he was more or less the devil in an adaptation of a Stephen King novel and here he gets to you know cast the devil out he's got a celebrated career Um, but you know Cedaw playing Father Marin standing you know with that with that statue of Pazuzu across from him I mean it's, it's just great cinema and it's this kind of thing that I find that a lot of critics and a lot of film scholars don't really even want to talk about. They just want to go, they want to dive into the subtext, you know. But this is such a great setup. The The prologue of this film goes, you know, here's your high noon moment, folks. Here's the cowboy standing off against his opponent for the great showdown that is to come. And yet... If you've seen the movie, we know Marin's not the gunslinger to take down this enemy. Um, this cuts away to an utterly normal home um, in in you know in America, and we, we so we move all the way from the Middle East to to America. There's been the setup of a great cosmic conflict, and then we move to the utterly banal, the utterly mundane home of Chris McNeil, who is an actor, and uh, she's hearing something up in the ceiling. There's something up in the attic. And something being in the attic could be a pretty normal thing. But because we're watching a movie called The Exorcist, it's just going to produce that moment of dread. We get the scenes with Chris McNeil and her daughter, Regan. And so these, these are scenes that are, you know, we're waiting for something to happen. But Friedkin keeps giving us these moments of everyday norm- normality. So what's what's next to the moment with the Ouija board? A mother and her daughter just spending time together. And what's get, what gets cut next to that? You know, this beautiful moment where they're hanging out together and talking about, you know, are you going to marry Burke? And, oh, I don't know. And, and then this great hug. And I got to say, Linda Blair sells this movie for me. You know, I'm going to talk a lot about editing today, but I want to make sure that I say this. Linda Blair is adorable in this film. And and I think, by the way, it's one of the reasons that this movie works so well. I'm going to talk more about this a little later. But at this point, I just want to say she just plays an adorable kid so well. I just love her. And, you know, as as someone who, you know, I'm a dad, I have a daughter and I watch these scenes with uh, Ellen Burstyn and Linda Blair and I get it. I'm like, yeah, you love your kid and you don't want them to get sick and you don't want them to be hurt. And this movie's just playing on that stuff. I mean, it for sure it was playing on the, the religious anxieties and the conservative anxieties and the, oh, post Watergate scandal and America's completely screwed up stuff for sure. And, but there are people who are like, this film is about teenage rebellion. And I'm like, what movie were you watching? What movie were you watching? Well, the possession of the... This is just a moment of teenage rebellion. Well, there was a lot of teenage rebellion going on in the 70s, but I don't think it's happening in this movie. What I think's going on here 
is a move that uh, the television series The Haunting of Hill House works with, plays with. Uh, so does the movie Hereditary. Taking, it's, it's, it's a combination of, of emotional moments. Like pure horror. Can you have it? Horror's hard to sustain. Like the jump scare comes and then you, okay. Or dread comes and it builds. But, but if you do too much of it, it just burns out. So what do you have to do? You have to mix it with some other potentially positive feelings so that the audience gets this roller coaster of emotion. And so, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of see this with the exorcist, I think, because it's been around for so long. We sort of know what's going to happen, but with the haunting of Hill house, I really didn't know what was going to happen. And that movie scared the shit out of me, or I should say that TV series. And I, I was paying very close attention to the way that it crafted its narrative. And it would have these utterly heartwarming moments of family drama. And it would slam those right up against moments of terror and dread. And, and I think it's that combination that's so powerful. Sorrow is also, you know, when, once you've got the family drama thing going, then if you can generate sorrow, then you're really, really going to mess with your audience. It becomes this thing of like that you're, you're emotionally off balance for a jump scare, or if it's for a comedy, it's for a laugh. Um, but in the case of The Exorcist, this movie, I think, makes us fall in love with Regan and say, this is, you know, she's a beautiful child before it's going to destroy her, right? The moment that she comes into the party and urinates on the floor, this moment of intense discomfort, um, and and the way that Ellen Burst, Bernstein in the next scene is, you know, washing her back, this is not this this film, Mark Kermode calls this, like he says um, that, that this movie is about this, you know, this teen rebellion potentially, and um, that the mother is infantilizing Regan. Oh no, I'm sorry, that's not that's not Kermode. The uh, um, what do you <laughs> clapboard? Uh, that's Kim Newman. <laughs> My bad. And I love Kim Newman, but I gotta say, I think Kim Newman's out to lunch on that reading. I don't think that's a good reading. Um, Newman, you know. Friedkin's ecstatically vulgar take on teen rebellion uh, makes this clear, clear message to be ashamed of your body, fear sexuality, trust priests and avoid change. <laughs> like, I just don't know what to do with you people. Like, what is it? What is it that, you know, you're watching here? What movie were you checking out? Um, and that that the mother wants to keep Regan in this state of, of childhood. And I'm like, I don't see it. Like, sure, she's washing her back here, but she just, she just is something really weird and awful. I think what we see here is like a, a, a picture of really intense love between a mother and her daughter. And maybe that's just too nice. That's too fluffy for film critics to work with. But I think that that's more what this film is about. And it is the, um, the moment at which this breaks down because of, Regan's possession, that the film takes on this aspect of domestic horror, of horror within the family sphere. And all you have to do, again, is take a look at the performances. Ellen Burstein playing Chris McNeil, that look of horror on her face when she comes into the room and Regan's jumping on the bed. And what does she do at this point? Does she shout at her and say, you get down from there, young lady, and do some sort of thing that infantilizes her? No, she joins her on the bed. 
she jumps on with her. And I, I think that that as a picture is clearer than digging for some sort of ridiculous subtext involving teen uh, or adolescent rebellion. That what we have here is a mother who just jumps on the grenade, as it were. Her daughter is in trouble. She jumps in to, to try to be with her. And she never abandons her. She sticks with her the whole time. And the stuff that goes down is like, it's so harrowing. But she never gives up on her. She never gives up on her. So great. The look on her face when Regan is getting the arteriogram is one of those moments where I, I'm like, they've got these really complex readings for this movie. I think what's on the surface is really screamingly obvious. This is a movie about a mother who loves her daughter and her daughter has become inexplicably sick, afflicted. The arteriogram, by the way, is uh, the scene that apparently made people faint. So there was all this like people passed out when they saw the exorcist. And uh, according to Blatty, uh, in the, in the showings that he was at, he was like, it was during the arteriogram scene. It was just, you know, and, and Mark Kermode, he likes to use the word pornographic. I tell you, um, Kermode's, uh, study of, of the exorcist, he keeps saying when pornographic detail about like this scene, which by the way, is filmed in a real medical facility with real medical staff. These are the, the, the people who would have done this to you if you had to get one done. So they had the real people do it just to retain that cinema verite, that sense of realism. But what is the story that we're getting here that's so realistic? It's a family drama. And all you got to do is take a look at the mise-en-scene to reinforce that. What's the mise-en-scene of this film? It's not a gothic castle. It's not a cabin in the woods. It's not some backwater house with a bunch of, you know, derelict cars sitting out front. It's a house. Just a regular old house. Like that, 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 that uh, establishing shot at the beginning of the film that shows where we are. This really, really long view that demonstrates where the house is and the staircase right next to it so that we'll have some sense of where all the action is going to occur. You really initially can't pick the house out. It's just not distinct enough. I remember the first times I watched it, I was like, oh, this is a nice shot of the entire city. But it didn't really strike me that what I was supposed to be seeing was where everything was going to go. And then in subsequent watches, I'd be like, oh, there's the staircase and everything's there. It's just a, it's just it's an it's a banal setting. There's nothing fantastic about this. And yet the repetition of these normal elements, Regan's window, for example, which gets shown over and over again because it's a site of uh, you know, intense drama is a motif that's repeated, but we don't need to find any symbolic significance in that window to understand its function in this particular film. You know, it's the, it's the site of Burke's death at one point. It's the, the, the space that we look at when stuff's telekinetically flying around the room. It's the, it's the space that uh, that uh, Father Karras is going to go through at the end of the film in this moment of sacrifice to save Regan. And uh, and then we get a door. So we get a window and a door. How amazing. These are such incredible motifs. And it's like they're absolutely normal. And we don't have to look for too much symbolic meaning here. They're just, they're, they're motifs like a closed door. That does something to our psyche. That is legit something in psychology. If you hand somebody a wrapped gift, Something goes off in our brains and we're like, ooh, curiosity, what's inside? You close a door like this and you keep... What I love about the way that Friedkin films this movie, and they had to actually build a uh, rudimentary steady cam rig 
to to film in the way that they did. Uh, something that Kubrick wouldn't wouldn't have to put up with for The Shining when he was following the kid around on his big wheel. Um, but the, uh, the the sweep, this push in towards the door, so many times. And once we know what's behind, the, once we know what what's behind that door, we're like, please stop moving me towards that door, right? I want to get back as far as I can. Um, but the camera moves us towards it, and it's a normal door. It's a normal house. There's nothing weird about this. But man, when that door is open and there's that weird light inside, even just the positioning of the light that takes me all the way back to Cat People and Val Luton, Jacques Tournier put that light down on the floor you know it's not that there's a lamp that's actually knocked over there but it's that that lighting is going to give it this unearthly feeling and it it the door sits in a position of prominence in so many scenes when chris is standing outside and she's talking to the doctors we can see the door clearly framed between the two doctors um, when she's sitting with her housekeeper or the nanny, I guess she is. Um, and the door is framed right between them uh, over and over. We see that door so many times. And then there's that moment when Father Karras and Father Marin go in to perform the exorcism and close the door on her. Oh, that is such a powerful character moment. Again, this is something that, you know, uh, well, we can't talk about that because there's not enough subtext. It's just too obvious. It's just too on the surface. And I'm like, yeah, but that's what makes that's what makes this movie work is here. We have this mother who just doesn't want to be separated from her daughter. And at the moment of climactic showdown, she's shut out. And people be like, well, that's the patriarchy shutting out women. And this film is about how women have been shut out. Nobody's actually said that. But I can imagine somebody saying that. Maybe somebody said that. I haven't read it is what I mean. But I'd, I'd be pushing back going, wait a second, wait a What if this is just about generating horror at this point? Because if we are tracking with Chris McNeil as character, this moment, I mean, the look on her face. I'm actually, my eyes are doing the thing with the tear ducts right now. Because I feel so much for this woman in this scene, in this moment. She's about to be shut out. She's not going to get to take part. She can't to some degree. She'll be there after everything, after it's all hit the fan. She will be there. But right now, she's not allowed to be in there. I think it's such a powerful moment. Doors and windows doing this. The utterly normal rendered abnormal, rendered, you know, the natural rendered supernatural. And finally, after, you know, and I, I don't know how much I've talked about it in these lectures. I know that I've talked about it in discussions with my students this semester, but there is a lot of horror criticism that uses Freud's uncanny. And quite often my reaction to seeing it is what is it doing here? Like the uh, Devil's Advocate book for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre by James Rose. I'm like, okay, I sort of get why you could possibly use Freud's Uncanny there, but nah, it doesn't feel like the best critical um, or uh, theory to to bring to bear on that particular work. Um, And it shows up in, in, in it shows up all over the place. I'm always seeing the uncanny. And then I read Mark Kermode's The Exorcist and he doesn't talk about it. And I was like, this is the one, this is the one, you know, uh, Murray Leader has this to say about the uncanny so that we understand what it is in case you're listening or watching and you're like, but I don't know what Freud's uncanny is, man. Uh, the uncanny is his theory that Freud, well, it's a, it's an essay that he wrote about the homely and the unhomely, the heimlich and the unheimlich, um, 
the the uncanny is not simply this is now Murray Leader is not simply that which is frightening, but rather that which is frightening because it is familiar, because it contains quality of familiar and familiarity and strangeness, and that's why I think The Exorcist has has a better um, reason to be read with the uncanny because this house is utterly normal. This isn't that batshit nuts house with all the skulls and bird pieces and strange bone arts and crafts, you know, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's not even like the abandoned uh, farmhouse, which is relatively normal in Night of the Living Dead. This is a very normal domestic space for the 1970s. And what's come into it? Something unnatural, something abhorrent, something uncanny, unheimlich, right? These, These subliminal moments in the film which are so incredibly hard to see in in certain prints. And I know that my students watching this on, on our, our not-so-great e-reserve streaming from McEwen University, uh, but we love that we have it. Woo! Um, but we, we might miss some of these things. But the one that, one that you can see very clearly is when uh, Chris McNeil is in her kitchen. She's about to go upstairs to check on her daughter. Uh, this is the night that, uh, that uh, Burke Dennings dies, or is murdered. And... Um, and there's this image that's superimposed of Pazuzu, of the demon, over top of the hood for like the, for the, like the, the air intake for the, the stove, the oven. And that creeps me out every time I see it because it just comes in and goes, Goosh, and it's gone, right? And it's a super, super simple effect, but it's so effective. And it brings, I think it's, it's, it's one of the best uh, visual examples of how this film engages with the uncanny, uh, making something frightening because we're in a familiar space where, and the film has familiarized it, familiarized us with it by this point as well. We've been in this kitchen a couple of times, so we are familiar with it and it contains these qualities of familiar familiarity, but now it also contains qualities of strangeness. The same thing with, with Regan. Regan goes from being normal child to this possessed monster transformation uh, in so many ways, analogous to other transformations in horror. And it got me thinking about Jeff Goldblum's trans- transformation as Seth Brundle in The Fly. Uh, and, and, and how the, there is a similarity. And, and then I also, I always want to think about the differences, um, because there's this great, uh, there's this great comparative concept. Um, from a religious scholar named Jonathan Z. Smith, no relation whatsoever to the guy who founded the uh, Church of the Latter-day Saints. And he would say, what difference does the difference make? Like, let's identify the differences. We, we, we obviously will compare something because of similarity. But once we have that similarity, we begin to look at the differences and what can we learn about that work based upon those differences. So I want to plant that seed so that we can come back around to it. Um, there's been much ado, uh, you know, about the makeup effects on The Exorcist. Moving away uh, briefly from talking about the uh, the editing to talking about the makeup effects. This was a this was a push forward um, when Planet of the Apes was made in the nineteen late nineteen sixties, and then the other films in the seventies. Uh, it was considered like huge breakthrough in uh, prosthetic makeup, but the apes' mouths didn't work very well with the actors' jaws. And when we get to The Exorcist, the uh, the makeup effects by Dick Smith um, were about taking those prosthetic things and instead of making a full-sized mask for the actor, pieces 
of prosthetics so that Linda Blair was able to continue to emote, to use all of her facial features and that the prosthetics would move with those. So that was that was a huge breakthrough. But again, what we're seeing here is the same sort of transformation, these prosthetic effects that we're going to talk a lot more about next week with John Carpenter's The Thing, which would come to, in many ways, drive and dominate the horror of the 1980s, uh, are just in their infancy here with The Exorcist. But they are one of the things that transform um, the innocence of Linda Blair as Regan into the monstrosity uh, that uh, she is as this possessed creature. Now, although much has been made about the, the, those makeup effects, I just wanted to sort of take a moment to talk about them so that we can continue to think about how this film has some relationship to films like The Fly, where there's this, you know, long form transformation uh, of, a, an, of a descent into monstrosity, um, again, returning us to um, editing. And the moment when Father Karras pulls up, and the camera has this great close-up of Linda Blair in all of her disgusting makeup's glory the, and the, the crazy contact lenses, full-eye contact lenses that she's wearing. And then that gets cut with – next. so we, we cut away from that and go to Father Karras outside the house in that famous image that we see on you know almost all of the posters. And then it cuts back to the demon – inside Regan once again same shot as as the initial one and and again this is this is how editing crafts narrative he's here is sort of you know what goes down at this point there's this awareness visually that you know we say like he's here the demon's just been waiting for him this is the guy this is the exorcist and then once Karis or I think I said Karis but I meant Father Marin my bad um once Marin and Karis are up in the room and we get these these moments of, of, of you know, uh, Linda Blair thrashing on the bed and the makeup, and then we get these, again, these subliminal cuts, these really great disturbing edits that include footage of Eileen Dietz in that test makeup, um, and it's utterly disturbing because the way that it's cut makes it feel like it's part of the the natural flow of the action that's happening there and just sort of comes in and 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 it intensifies the monstrosity of these moments absolutely the makeup effects are doing great things but it's these cutaways to eileen deets that are that are really i think some of the most unsettling stuff that happens in the movie speaking of unsettling let's take a look at the vomit scene the the Oh, so famous pea soup vomit scene where we've got Jason Miller playing Father Karras talking to Regan, uh, talking to the demon in Regan. And because he never really meets Regan, does he? Uh, I mean, this is one of the, the things that people have said about the film. I mean, this guy basically sacrifices himself for a little girl that he's never really met. It's very, very powerful. Uh, but uh, Regan vomits on him. And um, we get the shot of the... Vomit shooting out, cuts away to Jason Miller, Father Karras, getting hit in the face, cut back to Linda Blair. No, cut back to Eileen Dietz. And this creeps me out just about every time I watch the movie, because 
you know, I expect it to cut back to the somewhat familiar distorted features of Linda Blair and the prosthetic makeup. And instead what I get is I get her body double and she's so much older that there's this moment of like, what just happened there? And again, there too, I think that what we're dealing with is some more of the way in which this film plays with some of the concepts from Freud's Uncanny uh, in cinematic ways. Cuts back to Father Marin, or sorry, Father Karras. I'm terrible with names today. Um, and then we get this harrowing shot of Linda Blair with the pea soup vomit all over her face and her dress and those awful contact lenses glaring out at us. But w through the magic of editing, Eileen Dietz appears for a moment as Regan, as demon-possessed girl. And it's so incredibly effective. But then it takes us back to Linda Blair and it stabilizes it in, in that way. And there's a, there's a few other sequences where, where they do this, where they'll cut to the body double, very clearly cutting to the body double. It's not like, hey, we're trying to cover up the fact that we put in another actor. But it works in the movie because of how much physical transformation is going on with Regan. And it works because of those subliminal shots of Dietz in the test makeup that looks so drastically different. It's like almost like kabuki makeup. It's this very, very white face, red lips against a completely black background, but it's really, really powerful. Speaking of Father Karras, let's come back to our, our concept of dread and the way that this film builds its narrative through all films build their, their narratives through editing, but the exorcist has some really wonderful moves with editing. And what we get is this parallel storytelling intercutting back and forth between the story of this single mother and her daughter and the story of a priest who's losing his faith. Now there's also the sub sub story of this detective looking into the murder of Burke Dennings, but it is not as it, it doesn't run all the way through the film. It comes in at a certain point and he's in for a bit, but it's not as pervasive as the content with Father Marin. And what's or Karis? Dang it. Jason Miller as Father Karis. Um, so we get, again, the building of dread, even within this, um, this, this parallel narrative building towards, you know, moments that unsettle us. Like when he meets the homeless guy and, and he, you know, he says, you know, could you, could you spare, could you spare, you know, something for an, an, old, an old Catholic father? And the way that the lighting is used on that homeless person at that, the actor is the homeless person at that time is unsettling. And so it, 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 it continues to build this sense of dread as we're waiting for something to happen. But we, we learn about who Karis is through these moments of cross-cutting. We know that he cares for his mother very, very much, that he loves her. Uh, and by the way, the sequence where he goes to his mother's uh, to check on her and see if she's okay was originally placed later in the film. And the scene where he's at the pub confessing that he doesn't really know if he believes anymore was first. And in the final cut, it's moved later. So this is what I was talking about earlier, where editing can change the very narrative in the final, uh, the final moments of crafting a film. It becomes, as uh, you know, some have said, the final draft of the film. And it, it can change it in really radical ways. So Father Karras is a priest who doubts his faith, who loves his mother. And 
again, we've got guys like Mark Kermode, who, near as I can tell from what he says in his BFI classics, because he has this point where he's quoting um, William Friedkin, and Friedkin says this. Uh, Friedkin says, in fact, I'm not aware of any far-reaching social problems that The Exorcist dealt with. That usually comes later, when people have run out of things to say about the film, they start describing the social implications of it. One guy wrote a piece saying that the film was really about a kind of homosexual wet dream between the two priests, being, uh, about the two priests both being lovers and having to destroy the female, in this case, the little girl. And then Kermode goes on to say um, that, you know, he's going to... Uh, keep his wonderful theories. He says, the campus bar scene about which I retain my wonderful theories, despite the director's derision, um, you know, it, it just feels like digging all the time. Like, do these, do, do, do Father Karras and Father Dyer, are, are they gay? Maybe. What would it change about the film if they were or they weren't? Does their, does their gender preference, does their sexuality, sorry, does their sexuality matter? Or is this just, now we're just reading for, you know, crazy sake. And I've compared this, and I've told this to my students, but I don't think I've recorded it. This feels like what we do with film is like we're taking art and playing Where's Waldo with it when it's not a Where's Waldo picture. Like, the whole point of a Where's Waldo book is to find the guy in the little white and red sweater in a sea of people, in an image that's really, really dense. But can you imagine walking up to any other painting and going, okay, let's play find the hidden guy. Well, what if there was no hidden guy there? Well, we're still going to try and find him. And that's a little bit of what I think, I, I feel like, you know, these, these critics tend to be playing with. Could Father Dyer and Father Karras be gay? Yes. Would it change the film? No, not really. Not for what the film's about, because Father Karras's narrative isn't about his sexuality. It's about his relationship with God and his relationship with his mother and how that features and in, factors into this crisis happening with this mother and her daughter. And so the loss of his mother, the fact that he failed her in some way, added together with these scenes where we find him like running around the track and he's, he's a fighter. You know, he's, he's boxing in the one scene. He's just beating the crap out of a punching bag. And we realize this guy's a fighter. That's, that's what that says to me. And that's normal filmmaking. And I think sometimes we're just, we're not happy enough with that. That's not good enough. So we got to dig beneath the surface. And we can find deeper meaning. Don't get me wrong. I don't have a problem with deeper meaning, but it just, it ought to make a difference to the way that, the, that we read the film. What I think if we read the first part of the film in any other way other than Father Karras is a fighter, a fighter who's fighting for his faith, who's losing his faith, who's doubting, which makes him kind of broken and potentially very realistic for the 1970s. And then when, you know, he finally meets Chris McNeil, we have this sense of like, this guy's going to fight. He's going to fight. We, we know he will. We know he's broken. We know he's got problems, but we know he's going to fight. And it makes this scene that, that, that the, was put back into the film for the so-called director's cut where uh, Father Karras and Father Marin are sitting on the stairs. And, I, and I, love, I love the positioning of this shot because we can see Regan's door and we can see this stairwell that features so heavily in this film. So much happens on that stairwell. Like there's so much action that occurs in this tiny little space. And there they are sitting placed just so perfectly with Regan's door between them, one on the upper stair, one on the lower. And they're having this conversation 
about why this is happening. Father Father Karras says, why this girl? And uh, Father Marin says to bring us to a despair that is at the point of hopelessness. To make those around her feel animal and ugly and worthless. And and the movie is, you know, titled The Exorcist. And so I think we're, we're focused on, uh, on Marin at this point. But it's not Marin who's going to rescue Regan. It's Karras. It's broken Karras. Karras the fighter. Karras who's, you know, not given up yet. And again, we get that shot of the door. But now it's Karras walking down towards it. The final showdown. And he goes in and it's, it's a, you know, surprisingly physical showdown, which in some ways felt reminiscent to me of like how physical uh, the horror of Dracula was in the battle between Van Helsing and, uh, and Dracula. But he goes in and ultimately kills himself to save the girl. And it's a beautiful ending as a result, because as I've already said, this is, this is uh, someone dying for someone else without ever having met them. It's a beautiful, beautiful bit of Christian symbolism. But Regan's a little girl again at the end of the film. She's got the marks, the slight scarring, but she doesn't remember anything. And consequently, that's, that's why some people say this is not a horror movie because it doesn't end on some sort of a downbeat. It doesn't end on a terrifying note. But I, I think that that presupposes that horror has to end badly. And again, we've got Andrew Tudor talking about the secure horror and the paranoid horror, the secure and the insecure horror. How does the movie end? Well, if it ends and the monster's been destroyed, then that's secure horror. If we've dealt with the big bad wolf, secure horror. If the monster's still out there, if it's still at large, that's insecure horror. And some people have made a great deal about how uh, the director's cut plays a little more with the ending and gives it even more of an upbeat finish. And they're like, you know, that, that really reduces the, the, the darkness of this film and, and supports the idea that this is just a theological thriller and not a horror film. But Thomas M. Sipos, who's written a book about the aesthetics of horror films, says, this is his definition for horror. He says, horror supposes a threat building tension with its promise that something hideous will occur and there is no escape. That sounds an awful lot like uh, like Julian Hainich's Dread. Horror supposes a threat building tension with its promise that something hideous will occur and there is no escape. And this film certainly builds that. In that first hour, we got nothing but. Sipos goes on to say, it must posit an unnatural threat. Well, demonic possession, even for a religious person, is supernatural. Unnatural that is outside the realm of normalcy, reality, or history. Certainly fits the bill for Sipos's definition. And if for no other reason, I think we can just say that audience reaction shows that this was a horrifying film, that the emotion of horror, or whatever we want to call it, dread, terror, etc., um, can be invoked by this film. Next week, we move completely away from the supernatural possession of an individual. And I should come back right now to talking about the fly because uh, the fly is an example of the same sort of prosthetic scientific possession that we're going to see with the thing, with John Carpenter's The Thing. Now, the fly, just to come back to The Exorcist for a moment, the fly is Andrew Tudor's insecure horror. Uh, in some ways, it ends on that downbeat. The the, the monster has uh, completely transformed Seth Brundle, and he is lost. 
He is utterly lost. He doesn't get to come back like Regan does. And there is a sort of uh, coda to the film that makes us wonder if perhaps uh, the, the monstrosity of the fly has not ended. But next week, we move from the supernatural possession of the exorcist to the sci-fi possession of not just one little girl, but many grown men at an Antarctic base. Um, so next week, prosthetic body horror with John Carpenter's The Thing, one of my favorite horror movies here on Triple Bladed Sword. <laughs>